listening to theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Welcome to the Travel Show. I think it's a splendid idea. Podcasting around the world. The UK's best podcasting show for world travellers of all ages. It's a podcast full of hints and tips for travellers of all ages travelling to all places. It's all about getting out and having much more fun. Hello and welcome to another travel show. And in this podcast, we get on the road and meet someone who took the opportunity after sixth form to escape academia and see what the great big world had to offer. In 2004, Naomi Cartwright chose to volunteer for her gap year project to work in a school for disabled children in Cambodia. After the 12 weeks were over and accompanied by friends, she travelled for another month around the country before heading into Thailand. Then, like many travellers, as she was down there, so to speak, she decided to take in Australia as well for another month, where she experienced reverse culture shock before finally coming home. So let's start at the beginning with the placement itself, which was based in Phnom Penh, which is slightly off the normal gap year beaten track. Um, I guess I always knew I wanted to have a gap year because I just couldn't face sort of going straight to university and being more academia basically um and i was particularly keen on asia just because we'd been i think we'd been to malaysia on a family holiday before and kind of that really sparked my interest in it as much as it's just always been an interesting place to visit the idea of thailand and cambodia and sort of colorful and the images you see um and then sort of once i decided you know roughly asia and sort of going to have a gap here it came down to looking at at um, companies, so I think there's the website recommended by UCAS with all the listed gap year companies on, so that's where I started um, and just had a look mostly at what was available and the kind of time frame you wanted to go and cost, of course, because they vary quite a lot in what they offer, varying from projects to summer expeditions. And um, So, yeah, I originally booked to go to a company with um, I2I, a company in Thailand, and um, that was teaching in a school, but living with a group of other volunteers. And um, so I booked my flights and everything. And then they contact me, contacted me to tell me that it had changed. Um, and I would, in fact, be living on my own in a homestay in sort of rural parts of Thailand, which I wasn't so keen on. Um, why was that? Why, why, why didn't you want to live with a local local family? I think because, I mean, that does, whilst that does sound really interesting, I think because it was my first sort of time away on my own, and just wasn't really confident enough to do that. Um, and like the security of knowing there'd be other people my age um, going as well. Um, so I ended up going with a company called Outreach International. Um, yeah, which the project was in Cambodia. Um, I think it is worth mentioning that all gap year projects, and I was aware of this at the time, charge much more than it actually costs to either fly to the company, country or do the actual thing or pay for insurance or everything and what you're paying for as much as anything is the local knowledge um the local contact and the contact with whatever placement you do um which which is effectively priceless in many ways because it's a lot of local ngos in countries won't take on just random people obviously they, they're just kind of not really a great idea and an ngo is a non-governmental organization which are kind of 
in Cambodia particularly, there was still quite a lot doing lots mm. of work, various different things like um, abused women and children or kind of helping disabled people make arts and crafts to sell, like a whole variety of stuff. Mm. So, I mean, you're paying for the paying for the parachute and so are your parents, really. They, they want you to make sure that you, you're going to have a good time, but also, uh, just in case anything goes wrong, have something there to, to fall back on. Yeah, which I think is probably a good place to start for the first time you travel abroad and I know it gave me a lot of reassurance um although I did get quite sick in my first couple of weeks um and the local agent Cambodia at the time wasn't actually that good um and I had problems getting the help I needed at first um although in the end they did come through and take me to take me to the, to the hospital although I know at the moment um the girl who's doing being the local representative for the country now was actually on her gap year with me at the same time she was a graduate at the time um so I'm sure she's very good. <laughs> <laughs> so things have improved since, sure since that time. Improved, yeah. So first of all, um, when was this and uh, how did you get to Cambodia? Because obviously you had a ticket, presumably, to Thailand. Um, yeah, this was two two years ago? Three years ago? Three years ago. Three years ago? <laughs> 2003, 2004? God, I don't know. Um, I was 19, so three years ago. God. Three years ago. Um, and I went in... January, I went flew New Year's Eve actually, didn't I? Mm. Um, so basically after, wasn't I done my A-levels, I just worked solidly. I think I worked in a shoe shop and a bar just and worked so much I didn't have time to spend any money and just saved all my money. Um, and then, yeah, flew out New Year's Eve and flew to Thailand, spent a night in Thailand and then from there I think it's about £80 return or something, flights to Cambodia, which is only about an hour, so that wasn't a problem. And then was met at the airport, so that was easy enough. Okay, so you're met at the airport, and uh, what's the, the local form of transport, taxi service that uh, you were met with? Um, I was picked up in a taxi, in like a car at that time. Um, however, um, most kind of com most common form of taxis in Phnom Penh particularly is motos, motorbikes, and you sit on the back, and at first I was hor horrified by this, just because the traffic is crazy at any one point on sort of a wide, they're fairly wide kind of French if you imagine like French boulevard type roads, because I think it was a French colony at one point. So the roads are really big. Um, however, there's not like two lines of traffic, like you'd imagine sort of one going one direction, one going another direction. There might be like six to eight lines of traffic going one way and another going the other way, but not necessarily next to each other. You know, you'll be walking across. I always felt like crossing the road was one of those games where you step forward and the bit behind you falls away so you can't go back. But I didn't really see any accidents, and I guess everyone's actually only going about 10 miles an hour, um, despite the fact you've I saw, like, four or five people piled up on the back of them, and, yeah, it was pretty um, eye-opening when I first got there, but by the end I was kind of just used to, like, riding side saddle and pretty blasé about the whole thing too, I suppose. Okay, okay, that was the first impressions, obviously. So um, let's actually talk about this, uh, the actual gap year project you went on. Um, what was the, the aim of the project, the, the length of time, and, and actually, obviously, how much the, was the project costing you? Um, I think it cost me £2,300, maybe. Mine was cheaper than the others because I'd already booked my flight. Um, the actual project I did was working for... Um, I spent three months working at a school for disabled children called Lavala School in it's sort of 40 minutes just outside of Phnom Penh. So I lived in a guest house with three of the other volunteers who worked at different projects and we'd get picked up on the school bus every morning because um, I think two-thirds of the kids at this school boarded and then sort of the last third lived in Phnom Penh and got picked up daily. Um, yeah, it was yeah a really nice place, actually. The school itself was set up by two... Um, 
Catholic brothers, I mean brothers from the church, not actually related to each other, um, guys who set it up sort of in conjunction with um, a Cambodian guy who was the deputy head who was himself disabled, like his hand, I think he was handicapped. Um, and yeah, it was a really nice place. The kids were sort of the happiest, smiliest kids I've ever met. Um, well, let's, let's just paint a few pictures, first of all. Uh, first of all, disability in, in Cambodia is seen as, a, as a, a sin from a previous life. And presumably there were, what, landmine victims and, and other things like polio or whatever? Um, not actually too many, maybe one landmine victim. Most right. people were, um, sadly, things like polio that were preventable. Um, a couple of just, yeah, genetic things, um, cerebral palsy, one girl had acid thrown in her face, so it was disfigured on one side... Um, so quite an array of complete motley crew in that sense, sort of when I first got there, I didn't really know how to act around them or whether to help them, like particularly, um, the bus I was mentioning, we got to and from school in was kind of a pickup truck and sort of seeing kids and crutches kind of climb into it or kids with like no leg. And I was like, do I help them? Do I not help them? And then realized, you know, they've been doing this for years without me, like, I'm just, you know, they're going to need to do it after I've gone. There's no point relying on me anyway. Um, but yeah, no, it was kind of took me a while to get used to. And then you, re and then you realize they sort of the things they can do themselves and the way they treat each other when they're playing, you know, then they're rough and tumble with each other. And you realize they're just, they set their own, they don't limit themselves to things. You know, they try and they swim across swimming pools, even though they can't use their legs and they'll climb in pickup trucks or, you know, kids in wheelchairs would still play football. And, um, so that's really eye opening from the things kind of people are capable of and not, not setting limitations on them, letting them set their own limitations. And mm. they were much more realistic about things too. They'd sort of say, oh, I can't do that or I can't reach it. And not in a, oh, you know, I can't do it. Can someone help me? It was just like, a, well, I don't have an arm. I can't get it. Can mm. you do it, please? And, um, you know, kids with polio using their left... One boy, I think, had only his left foot he used to eat and write. And this was a 16-year-old boy. And yet spoke English pretty fluently and was like clearly really intelligent, could hold a conversation, but kind of had to get around by pushing himself on, on a skateboard, which is, yeah, kind of got used to by the end and just treated them all normally. But mm. at the beginning, I was quite um, taken aback by it. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. So, uh, again, setting the scene, the I've seen pictures of the of the school. Uh, as you say, it's on the, it's on the outskirts of, camp, of um, Phnom Penh. Um, and it looks... I suppose that's fairly luxurious, but it, they're large buildings that are simple buildings, very airy, just a, a plain floor. Obviously, it had a swimming pool, which which could be classed as a luxury item, but uh, must have been a, um, a more specifically an exercise tool and and something to teach them to swim, because obviously they might have to look after themselves from that point of view. Um, what what was your role there? Did you create a role for yourself, or were you actually sort of given tasks to do? Um, I suppose a bit of both, really, because. Um, yeah, and then the first week I spent just sitting in on existing lessons, English lessons and, like, geography lessons and PE lessons to see how things were done. Um, the idea then was I, I did a mixture of things, really. I um, took a couple of classes for English lessons, which w they were currently being taught English. I just kind of took over for a couple of months to give the head teacher a break. Um, I taught all the PE lessons, which were normally taught by the teachers, most of whom were themselves physically disabled, um, to act as obviously role models um and so i sort of brought in stuff i'd done from home like tag and different stretching exercises and sort of taught them a really loose version of netball um and that kind of thing 
Um, I also taught swimming lessons too and um, lots of swimming games and that kind of thing, which is obviously a lot of the kids able to have a lot more mobility in the swimming pool than they would otherwise. But it was kind of, yeah, um, when I got there, Brother Terry, who was the head, had some ideas of what he wanted me to do and also wanted to find out what skills I could bring to it. Like, I've got experience in swimming and PE, so particularly utilise those. Whereas if I'd been more musical, I'm sure that would have been kind of something we'd built upon. Mm, okay. Okay. And were the children, you know, fairly respectful to you or were they, you know, sort of like troublesome teenagers in this country? No. no. Um, the children themselves were probably um, an age range, maybe like eight, seven, eight to about 18, so older than I'd expected, and considering I was 19 at the time. Um, but they were very respectful. It really, Cambodia as an entire country made me realise just how desperate people are for education and how much they respect education. I had numerous times just when people would want to talk to me just to try and improve their English. And some of the teachers at the school would want to improve their English and in their way of learning, it would ask me things like, how do you learn? What methods? How do you revise? Which I was quite kind of surprised at, I suppose. Um, kids were like angels by comparison to British children in schools, desperate to learn, great fun, really responsive, really interested, particularly if I sort of tried to find fun ways of teaching them things or show them photos of like my home and my family and my friends. And yeah, they were really friendly kids, especially because um, I tried to make an effort to learn. If I was teaching them something in English, like the days of the week, I'd try and learn it in Khmer, which is Cambodian language as well. And they had great fun trying to teach me really simple things. Um, yeah, so that was really good fun. Oh, excellent, excellent. And, um, you know, you were obviously um, out in the, the wilds. Um, any sort of things happen, come creepy crawlies or whatever that you sort of uh, had to be aware of? Um, well, there were a few cockroaches in Cambodia and that kind of thing. But it was actually right at the end of my three-month stint at the school, I think possibly like the last week even, and I suddenly thought to ask about snakes. And um, Brother Daryl delighted in telling me that the room I sometimes used to, when I was swimming, one of the rooms I borrowed to change in out my swimming costume and stuff, just recently they'd had like a tree snake um, in there and it kind of like jumped from the balcony into the trees or something horrible like that. I think it'd come up through the sewage system out of the toilet. Um but more kind of personally, yeah, I was sat talking to, I think I was doing some marking, talking to one of the kids and um, heard a rattling. This was outside, presumably? Yeah, this is kind of outside, right on the outskirts of the school, kind of on the table and in the shade. Um, and saw this mouse and being followed by sort of a metre-long snake, which stopped when it saw us and kind of like half reared up and looked at us and I jumped on the table. I have to say to my shame, leaving the small disabled child on the floor. Um <laughs> Yeah, as a disabled child, not a great place to leave them on the floor. Thankfully, the snake followed the mouse and left. Um, and I apologised to the child. <laughs> um, and like two days later, in one of my PE lessons, which was kind of like on a tennis court, shaded tennis courts in the middle of the school, a small sort of half a, half a metre snake wiggled across it. And there was me thinking, you know, Buddhists respect snakes. Uh, they all attacked it with sticks <laughs> until it was dead. <laughs> and then when the neighbours of the school came and took it to cook and eat their dinner. Okay, okay, so uh, back to basics. Yeah, back to basics, so yeah. Um, so you were there for three months um, and obviously enjoyed it from, from everything you've said about it. Uh, what about the actual uh, sort of socialising? There was obviously, you, you were back at the hostel with uh, other Westerners from the, the same company, weren't they? Yeah, they were the same company. They were. It was quite good, good actually because there was a mixture of, there was... I think for the same company there was 12 people in total 
um, four of which, I think four or five of us were in Phnom Penh and everyone else was dotted around the country in different places. But there was a mixture of people who are graduates or a couple of people taking career gap years and a few people like me taking gap years before university. Um, and yeah, it was quite nice because you'd come home all from our own respective projects and yeah, make friends and um, sort of catch up and chat and go out for dinner and stuff. And there was a Dutch girl at the hostel we were staying at, a German guy working for the German embassy who we kind of formed, made friends with too. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really nice because we all had each other kind of come back to. But at the same time, I was really lucky because in my project, most of the teachers, um, like I said, it's sort of, a few of them are disabled anyway but a lot of the there were four female teachers three of whom were kind of only a couple of years older than me um and they kind of took me under their wings and like wanted to hear about my boyfriends and we went shopping and all this kind of stuff which is heaps of fun actually and um one of the guys at the school got married when I was over there so we went to his wedding and they took me to go and get ready at theirs and like have my makeup done for two US dollars in a Cambodian beauty salon I don't think they really knew how to kind of deal with all western face because I have to tone down the makeup a bit but just great fun all round. and um I think that's the best part about working on a project instead of just traveling through a country is you get to meet people who take you to things and show you things like they took us to the cinema and explained the kind of the Khmer film which was hilarious um and you know can tell you explain how things work and tell you things that you just would miss otherwise mm. I suppose and teach you parts of the language and phrases you wouldn't know otherwise and so that was probably the most rewarding part the relationship with not just the kids but also the teachers and the adults. Mm. Do, um, would you say that the more effort you put in the, the more you get out of it from the response from people? Oh definitely I mean even things like the more you make an effort to learn the language they love it if you can go in the morning and they all they all practice their English and sort of say good morning sister how are you and you're like how are you but they love it and you could say it back to them in Khmer as well and they'd all giggle and um do you remember some sayings um yeah sort of suksabai is how are you um but things like there's all Khmer slang like you get in England too and um part of it like suksabai is how are you but there's sizabok it's kind of like the slang and I'd do it to some of the teachers and just make them laugh because they'd be like how do you know that <laughs> and that kind of thing. it's just quite good fun yeah. um a couple of really useful phrases like talaina which means that's expensive which was useful market shopping because I could say it and the, the stool holders would giggle because they liked the fact I could speak English um speak Khmer but um it also meant I didn't have to haggle too hard because then you had been there a while so right, that was right. quite good so you went raw um th obviously Cambodia's had a fairly um troubled history uh did you delve into the history and have a look at, at the Khmer Rouge and some of the things that have been happening and so on there um yeah I mean I hadn't really to be honest I didn't really know anything about Cambodia at all when I went out there um and so everything I learned, I learned out there. And I lived opposite Tool Slang, which is the main genocide museum in Phnom Penh, which is a high school, which was turned into yeah a genocide museum. I think 7,000 people went through and only seven survived or something. Right. It was, and there's still like bloodstains on the wall. And it's, it's fairly, it's a fairly somber place. And they've got photos of every single person who went in with their serial number, which is pretty hard. You know, there's mothers and babies and children and men. And um, so it's a pretty harrowing place. I think what shocked me most is, you know, it's only 25, maybe now, 27 years since the Khmer Rouge were there, since I think an eighth of the population got murdered. Um, and so anyone over that age lived through it. They experienced it. And it's still very raw in many ways. You know, the Prime Minister's ex-Khmer Rouge is still fairly new being open to tourism. So it's all, uh, you know, a completely different feel to somewhere like Thailand, for example. Um 
I also visited the Killing Fields, which has obviously been the film about, um, which is sort of just south of Phnom Penh, which was, again, fairly horrific, kind of holes in the ground and still human bones sticking out the earth, and there's like a tower of skulls in the middle. It's, I think, very important to go and see because it's, it's you know, it happened, it was there, you can't ignore it. Um, and I think it's important to learn about, but just not necessarily the easiest thing to go and look at, mm. especially because, yeah... I mean, the reason it's landmined so heavily is because America kind of landmined it to, like, shit and denied it. And there's all that kind of Western involvement and, mm. on ign like, ignorance of it when it, it was happening, like, many genocides that you kind of feel quite ashamed of, I think, mm. and are just horrified it can still happen. Yeah, yeah, it just very, very uh, brings it alive too much, doesn't it? Um, so, comparing it to somewhere like Thailand, um, did you find that you had to be cautious about where you would go socially or clubs and that sort of thing, just a, just briefly? Um, yeah, yes and no, I suppose. I mean, it was still relatively new, sort of after about 10 o'clock, nobody really went out too much. Um, I guess you maybe would need to be more careful than maybe Bangkok, but because I was living there and I got to know some local moto drivers who would pick me up and drop me off places, I it was fairly safe for me because I could trust the people I was around and trust the people who would take me places. And having that local knowledge was quite good because they'd say to me, you know, there's going to be a riot on the streets today. Please don't go out. And you, you'd listen to them. And so it wasn't, it was all right, really. It was not too bad, but it wasn't, if I hadn't have had that, I mean, I'd be very careful about the people still, you know, still mug you at knife point and that kind of thing. So mm. it's worth being careful, but exactly. I was lucky enough that I didn't need to be so, okay. so really, I mean, the, the actual guest house you were with, and the, and the network you built up around that with some of the moto drivers, and 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 obviously yeah, some of the the people from school or whatever, made it a very safer environment for you. But presumably, if you wanted to push the boundaries, you could do. But you, it's in your own hands. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's move on because that that trip was only part of it. Um, uh, we haven't got very very long left now. But um, where else did you go after Cambodia? Did you stay there for a bit and then go somewhere else? How, how did it work? Um, after I finished my project, one of my friends from home came, flew out, and met me. And um, one of the other girls I'd met on the project and got on well with. And um, so the three of us travelled. We first of all went up to Ratanakiri, which is up in the up in the jungles, um, which takes kind of a fairly hardcore 24 hours to get there using different methods of transport sort of six eight people in a taxi which is horribly uncomfortable and that kind of thing um and which is yeah Ratnakiri is very rural and had a look around it's kind of like Chiang Mai in Thailand but more rural and went and looked around the waterfalls and there was kind of um a lake filled by a crater and that kind of thing um we also there's trips down to the beach is only Sihanoukville is only about three hours away from Phnom Penh so that's a very easy kind of weekend trip but um, the most significant thing I suppose we did afterwards is go up to Angkor Wat at Siem Reap, which I think like a nine-hour bus journey or something. I think that cost like three US dollars, so ridiculously cheap. Um, and Angkor Wat is well worth the effort. I'd highly recommend it to anybody. Um, you stay in Siem Reap, which is kind of the town that's been really built up for tourists. Um, I think you can get a one-day, a three-day or a seven-day pass. And personally, I you just one day isn't enough at all um you i think it's western prices i can't remember the exact amount it's a because it's a world heritage site 
um, but Cambodian people get in free, and you need a passport photo for your like tag that you get. Um, Angkor Wat, yeah, just absolutely phenomenal. Just you really feel like you're discovering it for the first time yourself. You're walking around these ruins, and you feel like you've just walked into the jungle and discovered these amazing temples, um, despite the busloads of Japanese tourists. Um, <laughs> you never get away from them. Yeah, you can't. Um, it's well worth getting up at sunset and um, sunrise even, and staying to sunset just because you can watch the sunrise over Angkor Wat or over one of the lakes we watched it. And um, in particular, I think my favourite place, two favourite temples with the Bayon, which is of all the kind of Buddhist, Khmer Buddhist faces. And um, the second was Ta Prom, which is the one in Tomb Raider. Um, so it's kind of like the temples entwined with sort of trees that have grown into it and overtaken it. And we got there just after sunrise. So I think there was like one other guy wandering around. So you really did just feel like you'd walked into it the first time. Just absolutely breathtaking. You just want to take pictures everywhere because it's so beautiful. Um, yeah, that was amazing. It does get very hot though. And um, we travelled around by moto because, it, you know, it's much f more spread out than you give it credit for. Um, yeah, it's easily kind of an hour drive back from the furthest temple to see him, see him reap. But yeah, just... Well breathtaking and so you you, you travel by moto um that sort of distance an hour's distance yeah i mean yeah we kind of got used to it by that point really um and it's kind of you could get taxis and stuff but it was just the most economical way of doing it i think it was something like it was either maybe eight dollars a day or something or it was you know pretty cheap mm. and um it was really good because they could take you then from temple to temple to save you having to walk because it's not really the sort of distances you can walk mm. Um, and obviously local guys, they, we got them from our hotel and they, you know, if they know something's really good, they'll suggest that you go there and you kind of listen to them and it worked, yeah, it worked out quite well. Excellent. And with those sort of motos, is that the, the way you get about when you've got the rucksack as well and all the gear? Um, you can do, yeah, some people, some people did, um, but it's, I mean, it's much easier to go in a rickshaw or a taxi, realistically, just because most people have a lot of stuff. But, okay. yeah, I mean, you did see people doing it. It is doable. It's just a matter of balance, how good a driver is, really. <laughs> uh, so so where did you go from there, then? Um, went back down to Phnom Penh and then flew across to Thailand, um, just in time for the Thai New Year, which is absolute mayhem, and kind of going from Cambodia, which is comparatively comparatively rural still to Thailand, I suppose, and the tiny year we stayed in um, Khoistan Road, which is like the backpacker place in Bangkok. And they just, everything is shut down around it. And there's no kind of traffic on any of the roads anywhere near it. And it's just, I think, a week's worth of water fight. And you, I think we got out of the taxi to try and find a hotel and just was drenched within minutes from head to toe. Um, so that's, it's quite good fun. They also do this thing where they mix um, flour, paste and water and put it on your cheeks for good luck. But some of them get kind of carried away in the crowd and you get in your eyes and, yeah, it can be a bit annoying. But um, great fun, just really great party atmosphere with the ties and the tourists and, yeah, heaps of fun. But just, I think we stayed for about three days and then escaped down south to the islands because it does get a bit much. <laughs> um, just one of interest, how did you get from the airport to Koh San? Because I know there's various ways of doing it. Um, we went and got a prepaid taxi um, from the taxi booth outside of the airport. Um so, yeah, we just did it that way because I'd been before and, um, yeah, knew. It's cheaper and faster. Yeah, definitely yeah. easy way of doing it. So yeah. Okay. So uh, which island did you go down to? Um, well, our original plan was to kind of go island hopping. We went down to, I think, caught the train down to Suratani and then got the bus from Suratani. And um, we were kind of going to go Koh Phi and the islands around it, but opted for Koh Lanta, 
which is uh, one of the more chilled out islands. And kind of after our whirlwind trip around Cambodia and our craziness in Bangkok, we kind of island topping turned into 10 days lying on one beach. But it was a really nice beach. And um, yeah, it was really just really relaxing, really good fun, good food, good people ridiculously cheap i think it was a couple of pound a night there are three of us in a room which is a really big room with a what, fan it's a couple of pound each or a couple of pound a couple of pound each i think yeah. um and i think it was the end of the season so again we got a discount and there were a few drink the bar dry parties possibly maybe <laughs> but it's all good you fun, can't so. remember i did a couple of boat trips and snorkeling and um saw a water snake there which i wasn't a big fan of I did a bit of sea kayaking and so yeah heaps of fun loads to do Mm. Could have gone to lots more beaches. I mean, they're all beautiful and hear great things about them. And it's fairly easy to get from beach to beach, but we were just too lazy. Okay, that's honest enough. Um, and from there, after a week or so's chill out, um, from there we caught a bus straight from direct from there back up to Bangkok, which I think was maybe twenty hours or something. It's quite a long, a long journey, which was fine apart from they stop every kind of three hours throughout the night. They're kind of there places they want you to stop and buy their food they didn't just stop they kind of have this like beep sound when um, the doors are open which is a bit annoying but did the job um so from bangkok my two friends both flew home and i flew to perth in australia by myself where i was met by kind of some family um so i stayed with some slightly distant family um for a week which is really good fun just to kind of stay in stay in a with a family in a home again and um they kind of use a washing machine and western back to the western yeah. world um so just to quickly uh, look at the cambodia and thailand separately what do you reckon your budget was when you're in cambodia well obviously your 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 accommodation everything was all paid for but your extra spending money for there and then the, the how much did it, did it cost you in thailand um i probably spent all in all just over a thousand pounds for the entire time probably the four month including oh, i was two weeks in two weeks in Thailand at the end, sort of two weeks travelling around Cambodia and then three months working. Um, probably just over a £1,000. It's kind of, yeah, I think, it's hard to tell exactly, but it's all really cheap out there. Everything's cheap. Travel, accommodation, food, like shopping. I didn't I didn't want for every, anything I was comfortable without being in the lap of luxury. It was... Mm. I didn't, wasn't scrimping and saving, so. Okay. Uh, and then uh, in Perth, you started the Australian adventure, I guess. Yeah, I had a, a month in Australia, which is not really long enough, but um, so I spent a week in Perth and then got a cheap flight from Perth to um, Perth to Sydney, which is, I think, maybe £90 or something. It was, considering it's a, I think, four or five hour flight, not too bad. Um, and so in Sydney, met a friend of mine and spent a few days in Sydney. And basically, we had three weeks to go from Sydney up to Cairns, um, up the East Coast. So we stopped off. We sort of stopped off at all the main places. Um, I think Byron Bay first, and had to go at surfing lessons. And then, I can't remember the exact order, I think it's Fraser Island next, which is they're kind of the set tourist route you do. And Fraser Island's an island made entirely of sand dunes, of sand. And um, you kind of get in groups with people and drive around in a big four four wheel drive and kind of pitch a tent and cook your own food and there's some beautiful places absolutely stunning um was, was that something you were, you were warned about dogs yeah there's um dingoes which are kind of wild dogs um 
but yeah, I think they were kind of a few years ago. I think they bit a small child or something, so people are pretty wary of them. It's kind of like a running joke. But then the first night in the tent, it was quite a big tent with so like six people in them or something. There was this howling outside, and I thought people were joking, but it they were like sniffing around our, our tent. You kind of there were real warnings about you had to lock up all your food in the in the car at night. Um, but other than that, though, it was okay. One of my friends actually walked down to the beach on his own, which again we were warned not to do, and um, found himself surrounded by them. So picked up a big stick and I think ran for it, <laughs> um, as you do. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah, yeah, nervous moment. So Fraser Island, obviously um, something quite special. I saw some pictures of you uh, on a on a boat somewhere. Uh, yeah, that was the Whitsunday Islands, um, which is just off Airlie Beach, which is again another main kind of stop on the tourist route between up the east coast. Um, there's a massive selection of boats you can go on. I think some are sort of 30, 40 people and real kind of party boats and others were much more kind of um, secluded is not the right word, limited, I suppose. Mm. Um, we opted for, I think it was called Dreamcatcher or something. It was a beautiful kind of proper sailing boat. I think there was about 10 of us on there um, just because we figured, you know, we're only doing it once, may as well do it properly. Mm. And um, spent three days going around the Sundays. Absolutely breathtaking scenery and kind of, they cooked all our food for us and we'd stop and get off and go and have a look at things and jump off the side of the boat and go swimming. and wow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you buy these sort of trips, presumably, when you arrive at all these different places, do you? And how much does it cost? Oh, I can't really remember how much it costs. I mean, obviously much more than... I mean, Australia is more expensive mm. than uh, than Asia, obviously. I think I spent over a 1000 maybe £1,300 in Australia in a month. Um, these kind of trips were a bit more expensive, but... It's kind of seems silly to... It's like going to Sydney and not seeing the Sydney Opera House. It's silly to go all that way and not do these kind of things. Um, and they were well worth them. I'd highly recommend them. Um, what else did I do? Went to Brisbane and met a friend who I'd met in Cambodia and stayed with her and her boyfriend, which was nice. Nice. To, it's, I think it's always nice staying with people who live there too because you get mm. to see a completely different side of the place than just kind of the tourists the tourist sort of skim the surface. Um and had an Aussie barbecue, uh, which is good fun, and um, went to Brisbane Zoo, um, which is obviously Steve Irwin's zoo, and that was really good fun too, and saw the alligator croc shows and stuff, which was wicked. Didn't see Steve Irwin, um, sadly, Never not will. going to now. <laughs> um, and then went up to Cairns, um, which is much more tropical. There was kind of, I went uh, April time april may time and um it's kind of fairly cool there after after uh, asia particularly um because it was a hot season when i was in asia but up in cairns it's still quite tropical temperatures and very hot and sunny um nice to top up your tan um and kind of a real beach feel about it cairns and um went off and did a couple of um just did snorkeling trips the great barrier reef which was yeah stunning saw um clownfish and uh, finding Nemo, and um, saw a baby shark, which was less, slightly less appealing. Um, yeah, apparently the diving's great, but I'm just not really into scuba diving. And did a couple of trips up into the Daintree Rainforest, um, which was, again, really interesting just to see a different... makes you realise just how big Australia is and how different things can be from sort of the real dusty red desert to kind of real tropical rainforest. Mm. So, yeah, it was really interesting. And did you fly home from there? I flew from uh yeah, I flew from Cairns to Sydney and then from Sydney to Perth and then flew home from Perth. Um but I mean it's you forget what a massive country it is, sort of 
I did a lot of um, 12, 14 hour overnight bus trips and that kind of thing. But you kind of forget them now once you once they're kind of out of the way and done. And at the time, we weren't in a great hurry, so it doesn't matter. But it's not too, not too, you know, it's not too expensive to fly. So that was quite a good option on the way back because obviously didn't have much time. But yeah, no, it all worked out really well. So fabulous trip. You left on um, New Year's Eve and you got back when? June? Uh, yeah, five months later. So, yeah, phenomenal trip. And then had the summer to kind of try and save some money for university. But, yeah, no, had an amazing time. I would highly recommend a gap year to anybody. And um, really enjoyed the combination of different things, combination of doing a project and the kind of insight that gave me into uh, a culture and sort of local life and a language. And um, then sort of doing a more travelery kind of beaches and particularly seeing the Thai New Year Festival, and then obviously Australia, which is completely different again, much more Western, but still still much, you know, completely different from home. So, mm. yeah, it was a fantastic trip. Mm, fantastic. And uh, the sort of people you, you met on, on the way, um, uh, you know, did, did they get the same things from, you know, basically you're mixing with different types of people from different backgrounds, but they're all sort of doing the same type of thing. Do they all come away with the same impressions, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I met a huge variation of people from kind of diff completely different nationalities, you know, Dutch, Norwegian, Australian, Canadian, um, British, people having gap years, people just having holidays, people travelling, and um, obviously people doing completely different routes. But everybody I met was having a great time, to be honest, all in all. Even you hear odd horror stories about people having stuff nicked or, you know, that kind of thing. But even so, it, whilst that was obviously a horrible thing to have happen, it didn't kind of dampen the overall impression of their trip, which is pretty good mm. so let's let, let's just spend a couple of minutes talking about gear because you went to three or four different completely different countries um i presume a 60 65 litre rucksack filled with what all kinds of stuff um yeah took a took i was fairly minimal packing lightweight packing on the way out there um took just a silk sleeping liner um the pack towels which are fantastically useful um took obviously a few odd resources for the school like ideas for lesson planning and teaching um which is hard because i didn't really know what i was doing till i got out there a diary photos from home which were really useful and obviously nice from my point of view um camera is pretty essential um obviously first aid kit and that kind of thing you need like sterile needle kit and that kind of stuff for somewhere like cambodia and i mean what was the what, what clothes did you take with you from um you know a cultural point of view um clothes wise i just took some fairly basic stuff um Cambo in Cambodia it's not basically if as a woman you show sort of much thigh and your tummy and your shoulders it's kind of what prostitutes wear so you just get more hassle um so I wore stuff mostly just below the knee and didn't show my tummy off and just kind of t-shirts or thick strap vest tops were fine um and most times I just carried a shawl in my bag partly because then you could always go in temples if you wanted or if you got hot or if you felt uncomfortable and that worked quite well um so yeah I took a selection of selection of clothes really and did did a lot of shopping because in particular in Cambodia there's um a lot of the clothes companies have their garment factories out there so you can get kind of Gap and Dorothy Perkins and stuff pretty cheap um yeah so gear worked quite well it wasn't didn't rain at all um at any point there or in Australia so I didn't need to worry about waterproof clothing um could have done with a few more warm things in Australia particularly uh I didn't take a sleeping bag which was obviously fine for Asia because a sleeping sheet was more than enough beings as it was the hot season. But um, I had to found I was having to get blankets and stuff all the time in Australia because I hadn't really thought, thought that far ahead. 
but gear-wise it's uh, not too much of a problem really you can kind of buy clothes and stuff as you go along fairly cheaply and as you need it mm. which work quite well uh, what about um sort of uh, hygiene stuff feminine hygiene and and washing gear and all that sort of stuff is that easy to come by um yeah not too bad because i'd kind of been warned that you need to take tampons and that kind of thing so they didn't sell them in cambodia and they did sell them in Phnom Penh, but obviously anywhere else in the country they wouldn't do um and as for shampoo and conditioner and all that kind of stuff they yeah they sold that some of it was local brands but it was fine the only thing you have to be careful of in asian countries particularly cambodia and thailand is if you buy moisturizer quite often it contains bleach because they're really big on having as white a skin as possible um so that's obviously something to don't want to buy by accident right okay okay um so just as a a last minute question then a fabulous trip three completely different countries you know wonderful scenery um exciting and, and different people just give me leave me with an impression of, of of one thing that really sticks in your mind from that particular time i think i mean so many images to choose from but i think it'd have to be just the kids smiling faces every single morning and evening without fail and just all of them just waving at me big grin on their faces saying um like bonsre which means older sister which is what they called me and just saying good morning good morning and just waving and smiling and just just their smiles i think that would yeah that's my overall image my thanks to naomi for sharing her story and details of what was obviously a rich colorful and vibrant five-month trip full of culture adventure and totally new experiences the gap year company she went with can be found at outreachinternational.co.uk and of course there's a link to it on the show notes on the outdoors station and that just goes to show what can be achieved on a tight budget if you're prepared to take the rough with the smooth and traveling life on a shoestring as it comes since this five-month trip naomi has since been for an extended break to india and that too will be found shortly on the outdoor station We're releasing as often as we can a range of podcasts looking at all the different aspects of outdoor life. So make sure you visit the Outdoor Station and subscribe, download or just play directly off the site for more free entertainment to inspire. Until next time, folks, safe travels wherever you may go. This independent programme has been brought to you by theoutdoorstation.co.uk. 